Welcome to Making Our Way, a podcast where we have conversations about some of the toughest and the best moments in life. This is a place where we hear from people who've created a way forward in spite of and sometimes because of the struggles they face. My own journey raising a child with a rare disease, Duchenne muscular dystrophy, is the inspiration for this. But this isn't just about Duchenne or my story. We all have something we're carrying. That's just life. So this is a place for all of us, for conversation, for connection, and to gain strength from each other. We are each other's keepers, and we can also be each other's teachers. We are better together. I'm your host, Marisa Penrod. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Larry Luxner. Larry is a journalist who's covered international affairs, politics, and business for over 40 years. But more recently, he began writing about rare diseases. He is fiercely committed to shining a light onto important topics and stories. So today's episode is just a little bit different. We're going behind the pen, so to speak, and we're focusing not only on Larry's story, but on the unique perspective and insights he's gained from sharing the stories of so many other people. When I think about my journey with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, I know that I didn't have a choice but to be immersed in this rare disease. A diagnosis was given to my youngest son, and that was it. We just started moving forward, didn't look back, and Duchenne kind of became just woven into our lives. So what always fascinates me and I'm grateful for are the people who who choose to be in this space with us. Those people who commit to helping and to telling our stories in order to impact our world in a positive way. And Larry is one of those people. He's traveled the world interviewing dignitaries and luminaries and brilliant minds, but he still remains really humble and curious. And so today we talk about hope, perspective, and the very human side of telling our stories. Let's get started. Hi, Larry. It's good to have you here with us today. Good morning, Marissa. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So you and I know each other because of my work in the rare disease space, your work in the rare disease space. And I want to thank you for being on the other side of the equation today, the other side of the microphone, so to speak, because you are normally the person who is interviewing other people and telling their stories. Now I know how it feels. (laughs) How does it feel? How are you feeling? (laughs) I feel pretty good. I trust you. Good. So on that note, just start us off with some context. Tell me a little bit about your professional background. Sure. I did not always write about rare diseases. This came about quite by accident. My background really is in covering international affairs, politics, and business. I've been a journalist for 40 years. Most of my experience has been in Latin America and in the Middle East. So about five years ago, I answered an ad online seeking a copy editor at a publication that produces a family of rare disease websites. I answered it by Total surprise, I got the job. And shortly after that, the editors determined that I was better suited as a reporter and writer than as an editor fixing other people's mistakes. Quickly, I pivoted to that and then began covering conferences. So Larry, in this field, this is a big leap from international relations, politics, covering the Middle East to covering rare disease. How was that shift for you? and covering something that seemingly on the surface is so different from what you'd been doing for decades. It is different, and there actually are some similarities. In 
becoming a journalist, I guess one of my passions was always to be able to tell people's stories, especially for those who couldn't tell their own stories. And that's what I did for many years. Writing about rare diseases is completely different for me, as you mentioned. And I have to confess, not having anybody in my family that was touched by rare diseases, maybe a disadvantage, but also a certain advantage because I can come to it not from a scientific point of view, but more from a humanity point of view. And also, I have to say that for many years, whenever TV commercials would come on about muscular dystrophy or Jerry Lewis, I felt sympathy and I felt compassion, but no special compulsion to do anything because it didn't affect me. And having now the experience of writing about it on a daily basis, I've totally changed. And I think that's also affected me as a journalist, because now when I hear stories about whether it's Duchenne or cystic fibrosis or something extremely rare that nobody's ever heard of, such as neuromyelitis optical spectrum disorder, I actually know what it is. And it makes me feel good that I not only know something, but also somewhat familiar with therapies, with treatments, with prognosis, and also with the patient advocacy organizations that work on behalf of those patients. Mm -hmm. So over the years, I've been able to develop relationships with a lot of people in those specific disease groups. And hopefully I've contributed something. Love that. So let me ask you a question. You've covered news all over the world. You've seen so much. When you talk about rare disease and let's just talk about Duchenne because that's what affects me personally. I think we have it tough, but that's my perspective from living in the United States and Michigan and a pretty comfortable situation. You see so much of the world. And I know you spent a little bit of time in Ukraine with a family with rare disease. Tell me about how that shifts your perspective and what you see that the rest of us really don't have that understanding of what a struggle can look like in a different part of the world. I think being able to travel, you do see how people not only live in different parts of the world, but also how they deal with rare disease. My trip to Ukraine had nothing to do with the current situation. In fact, it was to cover a conference on Jewish education of all things. That was last October, where the biggest concern at that time, honestly, was coronavirus. People were worried about infections and about the fact that only 19% of Ukrainians had been vaccinated. A Russian invasion was really not uppermost in anybody's mind. Nobody expected it. So right after the war broke out, I was able to connect with the people I had met on my trip to Lviv in October. And at that time, I met with, for example, one woman who has two children with spinal muscular atrophy. I connected with two Duchenne families. And then through video chat and through Skype, I connected with other families as well. Because Ukraine is a big country, and we immediately put together a story on how rare disease patients were coping. And one thing I can tell you, for example, two families in particular, one in Kharkov and one in Kiev, I interviewed them by phone or by WhatsApp from a bomb shelter. One of them was in a bomb shelter. The other family, they didn't have a bomb shelter. They were in the basement of their building and the 19-year-old daughter was in a wheelchair and she was surrounded by concrete walls and there was not much they could do. And at that time, the family was worried that they were running out of medicine. They had a generator. They had no electricity. And fortunately, the next time I spoke with them, they were in Poland. So a lot of the people I had interviewed by phone and by, by Skype and WhatsApp did make it out. And actually, two of them have gone back to Ukraine because the situation in Western Ukraine stabilized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did put a different perspective on things that we can't even imagine. So Larry, when we look at your body of work over decades of being a journalist, and it's so much with diplomacy, and international relations, You've been the news editor of the Washington Diplomat for many, many years. 24 years. 
24 years. Yeah, that's a lifetime for some people. So when you think about that work, which is incredibly important work and impactful, and then you're on the front lines really talking with families, whether it's in Ukraine, which is, of course, a unique situation, or even here in the States or anywhere else where you're literally sitting face-to-face with parents and sometimes with the children and the young adults affected by disease. How has that changed you? Sometimes it's not easy. I remember probably one of my first assignments as a journalist, as an intern at the Fort Lauderdale News in Santander, in Florida, where I grew up. And it was eight days after the disappearance of Adam Walsh. Maybe you remember the case? Yeah. And the father, John Walsh, had just been informed that his son's body had been found. And they sent me to interview him, like, how do you feel? How do you ask a parent, how do you feel at a moment like that? Mm -hmm. And I remember how tough that was for me, but it's a job that you have to do. Somebody actually has to write those stories. So I would say I've been doing this for a long time. It's very emotional, but I will say, and I think you would agree that at least with Duchenne, the parents are usually much more emotional than the boys. Mm -hmm. I have innumerable times sat in homes of families of boys in wheelchairs with Duchenne and the mom was crying and the son was just being normal and even making jokes about it. And I think you you would find the same thing, that the kids themselves don't think about this every day, or if they do, they don't talk about it. But I don't even think they think about it every day. It's the parents who have the responsibility. And my job as a journalist is to tell their story. So yes, it's changed me. I don't believe that any journalist can sit there and not be affected. It would be a lie to say, no, you have to be impartial. You can't have feelings. Of course, we have feelings. We wouldn't be doing this. Mm, That's beautiful. I love that take on it. I can tell you from my own perspective, when you had asked to interview me, I think it was your compassion and your genuine interest that made me feel comfortable. And I wanted to entrust you with my story because it's important for those stories to be told, but it's deeply personal. And we're in a really vulnerable place when we share. I'll say that uh, if I can, that I have had experiences of parents who had never told their stories before. Even their close friends didn't know, and they opened up to me. And we went public with the story, and they were grateful. They were glad that they did. So when you tell stories, and you are a journalist, of course, professionally, but I do think of you as a storyteller because you do such a great job of sharing the human side of the news part of what you cover. What's the best part of human nature that you've seen in your work? And diplomacy or international news or rare disease, What do you think is the best of us? We see a lot of hate and insecurity. And we were just talking about what happened in Chicago on July 4th. And that can shatter anybody's optimism. But I think when I see what parents go through, that somehow supersedes all the bad stuff. Because when you think of what you're going through and your trivial battles in life, and then you see what this parent has to endure and has to worry every day, is my son getting worse? Is there a therapy on the horizon? What clinical trial can I get into? Your personal problems fade into insignificance. They Mm -hmm. really do. I've probably done over 360 stories on rare diseases. Wow. Probably the diseases that we have written most about were Duchenne, multiple sclerosis, cystic fibrosis, Mm -hmm. and spinal muscular atrophy. These other diseases are pretty common, and the prognosis, frankly, is not that good. I don't know how much your listeners know about CF, but it's amazing. In 1955, children did not survive second grade with cystic Mm -hmm. fibrosis. Today, the average lifespan is approaching 51 or 52, and most CF patients are now adults rather than children. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's incredibly encouraging. When I see 
the results and the tr- dramatic progress with children who have SMA. Just five years ago, there was nothing on the market. Then Spinraza came on the market yep. and gene therapy, Zolgensma, in the time that I started covering it. It is absolutely mind-blowing. So yes, I think when I see the progress that science has made and parents and what they endure, I think that does bring out the best in people. And I'm encouraged by it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's so much good out there. And sometimes it's framed within the context of a catastrophic diagnosis. So it does bring out the best in people in a lot of ways, but there's so much upheaval in the world. But you write about international relations, about diplomacy. And so if we think about diplomacy, and then we think about what it takes in drug development to get something off the ground and in the advocacy space with a lot of people in the rare disease community who sometimes there might be a little bit of competing interests or a little bit of conflict. What do you think in the context of everything you see as a journalist, what do you think the potential is for unity? Like, what do we have that could unite us and what do we have in common? Well, that's a difficult question because right now, at least in my visit to the U.S., and this is a two-month visit, and I'm going back home in less than two weeks now, I don't see a lot that unites Americans at this time. Unfortunately, Mm. I moved to Israel five years ago. All I've seen is a continual downhill. Not that this should be overly political, but even apart from the politics, I don't see a lot that unites people in this country. And that's not a uniquely American phenomenon, obviously. In the rare disease space, I'm encouraged by what I see in Israel. I have to say, Israel is a world leader in scientific research, Mm -hmm. spends more money in medical research, and has a higher number of patents per capita than any country in the world. So that makes me proud. And I can say that in Israel, which is my adopted country, we have been doing groundbreaking research on anything from, uh, we've done SMA, groundbreaking research in MS, the list goes on. I'm encouraged by that. That makes me feel good. Not much I see in the political field makes me feel that good. But scientific advances are not based really on politics. It's a different world. And I trust science. To me, there's no greater inspiration. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I do too. I'm incredibly encouraged by the progress in the science. And I do think that's what unites us is a common goal, especially in the rare disease space, to save lives or extend life and improve the quality of life. I think there's hope. Two weeks ago, I had the privilege of interviewing Dr. Adrian Kreiner at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in Long Island, New York. And he developed, he was the brains behind Spinraza. How cool is that to sit there and interview a researcher who left his country, he left Uruguay 30, 40 years ago to come study at at Columbia University in New York. And he became the preeminent researcher to develop the drug that could slow the effects of spinal muscular atrophy. And today, 11,000 people are taking the drug that he developed. That to me is a success story. And that's what keeps me going when I interview people and I see brains like that and hope like that. You've had so many incredible conversations. You're so prolific as a writer, as a journalist. What are you still curious about? I'm curious in the direction that the United States is going. I think climate change, and even I use the term climate crisis now, Mm because it's not just change, it's a crisis. That to me is the biggest problem of our time. But in the same time, we, we have other issues that frankly scare me. What's happening in the Supreme Court to me is very frightening. I don't know if that's curiosity or or downright fear. Mm -hmm. I'm worried about that. I'm also worried about the infringement on personal liberties that we see happening. At the same time, we have 
an explosion of gun violence. And we write about rare disease. What about just walking down the street? We talk in the rare disease space a lot about community. We'll say in this community, this is our community. We need to have community. And I think that it's a beautiful idea. How would you define community and what it means? Because I think that's critical right now in all areas of our life, politically, in our country, outside of the United States. I think the idea of community might be central to really having hope for the future. People spend too much time on Facebook. I admit I may be one of them. People are in their own worlds. They're not really in a community. Unless you have some life-threatening situation, like Duchenne is a perfect example. If Duchenne didn't exist, probably most of the people that you connect with, you would have never known. Correct. And if that's as bad and as horrible as the disease is, it has managed to bring you together with people that you consider some of your best friends. And it's not like you said, it's not a club you asked to join. You didn't seek out Duchenne, Duchenne found you. But because of that sad diagnosis, that's brought you together. I don't know what it takes to bring us together. I don't know. Maybe we need crises to bring us together. Maybe we need a common enemy. Yeah, I think that's really insightful. Larry, is there one person you'd love to interview? You've interviewed hundreds of people. You've impacted millions, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with all the work that you've put out. Well, that's an exaggeration. I like to think that, but I don't believe so. I don't know. Your distribution for Washington Diplomat is pretty robust. Thank you. I'll make sure I tell the publisher that. Yeah, I think the ripple effect of the stories you're telling is might be immeasurable. Do you know who I didn't get to interview? Your son. Uh, we talked all about <laughs> King Joseph, and I never talked to Joseph. Well, I can help you with that one. I can check that off your book. And my regret is that we didn't quote him in the story. I would have loved to have something about him and his desire to be a journalist, because that made me feel good. That's yeah. somebody wants to do this. So, Larry, as we wrap up, uh, one final question for you. What do you hope your legacy is with all the work that you've done and all the stories you've told and the light that you've shed into corners of the world and into stories that never would have been told without your interest and your curiosity? What do you hope that leaves behind? My legacy reminds me of a Woody Allen joke. Do you remember the joke where Woody Allen was asked, what do you hope they say at your funeral? And he said, I hope they say, hey, wait, he's moving. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm not ready to think about my legacy yet. All right. Well, I think it's unfolding. And I will say, I think your impact is pretty special. And I'm grateful for your passion and your interest and you wanting to tell so many rich, wonderful stories. It's good to have you in our corner. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Making Our Way. If you enjoyed this, please share it and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any episodes. Production support for Making Our Way was generously provided by PTC Therapeutics, Pfizer, and Sarepta Therapeutics. Thank you for making this possible. If you'd like to learn more about the work that Team Joseph is doing to support the Duchenne community and to make the world a better place, please visit us at teamjoseph.org. Mm-hmm.